This is Kyle Hartung from Jobs for the Future, or JFF, and this is the Building Equitable Pathways podcast. In this series, leaders from across the country working at the intersection of K-12 education, post-secondary education and training, and workforce development will share their insights and perspectives grounded in practice to shed light on the why and the how of identifying and dismantling inequitable structural and systemic barriers to improve educational and career outcomes for youth. This is the last episode of our first season, and we're departing a bit from our usual format. We wanted to use our conversation today to reflect on the ground that we've covered so far in this podcast and consider the road we still have to walk in our work to build equitable pathways systems. To do that, I'm joined not just by two, but three members of our community of practice who are all leading exciting and impactful work in their communities. Hi, my name is Amanda McTaggart. I'm the Director of Strategic National Partnerships, Network Engagement and Innovation for CSU Success and are a part of the Connecticut State Colleges and Universities System Office. Hello, my name is Elizabeth Lindsay. I'm the CEO of Urban Alliance, which is a national organization that connects high schoolers with professional work-based learning experiences, mentorship, and skills training. Hello, my name is Kenyatta Lovett. I am the Managing Director of Higher Education and Workforce at Educate Texas. Amanda, Elizabeth, Kenyatta, thank you for taking the time to join us today. We've shared previously that our guests for this podcast all work at intermediary organizations as you do as well. And you often work in the background, but you are doing the vital work to improve, vertically align, and ultimately systematize the components of career pathways systems. Your organizations are situated differently. A statewide think tank, a national youth-serving nonprofit, a state agency office. But together, you are all advocates, you are designers, and your accountability partners. Elizabeth, I'd like to bring you into this conversation first. What brought you to this work? And ultimately, what do you find exciting about what you're positioned currently to do to advance equitable pathways? Thank you, Kyle. I'm so happy to be here. That's a wonderful question. I came to this work because of my personal history. When I was growing up, my family had extreme financial instability and insecurities. And so as a result... I was never, ever able to think about doing an unpaid internship where I couldn't go to my my mom or my dad and say, can you support me in applying to college or can you support me in connecting me with a friend who could provide me with uh, an experience in an office or in a career? And so my entire life, I've thought a lot about how do we support incredibly talented, incredibly brilliant and determined people who, because of where they were born or because of who their parents are, don't have the same kinds of opportunities as other people. I just think every day about the untapped potential in communities, especially among young people of color. And so uh, that's really why I do this work. My organization connects young adults of color with incredible paid internships, and we support them in really figuring out how to stay connected to the workforce and our education post high school. And it's just work that, you know, I would have loved to have been able to access when I was uh, 16 or 17. Elizabeth, thank you for that brief window into where you've been and where you are now. Kenyatta, what about you? Um, what what has brought you to this work and this conversation and and what you're currently trying to take on to, to build equitable pathways? 
Yeah, and Kyle, thank you for having me. And I really appreciated Elizabeth's comments. A different story and path, but I think we both have a similar drive in trying to make a difference in equity. You know, I was uh, born in Eureka, Illinois, where Eureka College is. My father, um, his first professor assignment was there. And uh, often I think about, you know, my first three or four years uh, growing up, all that I saw was you know, professors and students, people coming and going. And even there were, um, you know, students of color there and how that probably put an impression on me that, you know, this is the space where I wasn't necessarily raised, but probably trained. Fast forward into, you know, my world now after experiences at Howard University, which really equipped me with a better understanding of equity and, and diversity and progress. You know, my work is really to honor both my father and my mother. They came from low-income backgrounds. My father sat out a year to lay bricks in Memphis um, in the hot summers to save up enough money to be able to afford college. And we often joke that if you laid bricks for a year anywhere in America, you would have maybe enough money to have books. That was his path. And my mother's was the same way. And she actually dropped out of college and finished up as an adult. But the pathway for both of them coming from the backgrounds that they've uh, come from are a story of economic mobility that I benefited from. But unfortunately, when I look around, I don't see that same promise available to students that look just like my parents. And so each and every day that I get up and do this work, it's really to honor them and make sure that, uh, you know, knowing the difference for my family, for my parents, uh, if I can do that for other families, that would make a huge difference. And, you know, to the credit of my father, who's still one of the only members of his entire huge family to have a college degree, which actually made a big difference for generations to come. I hear in, in your words and Elizabeth yours as well, this, this honoring of, of family and community and where you have been and the way that has carried you forward into where you are now. Um, Amanda, what about, what about you? What, what has brought you to this work and uh, the role and position you currently have and your task around advancing an agenda around equity. So similar to Elizabeth and Kenyatta, this, my personal and professional journey, they're sort of really intertwined. I'm going to start by saying that I come from a family of educators and I, I feel like I was sort of born into this. I was able to see through my mother's career and the way she dedicated the bulk of her teaching career at high schools designed to provide more customized runways than a traditional high school structure about the power of what this work can do what it means when you believe in students in every student. I saw the impact that it had. When you have experiences like that, I honestly don't know uh, how it would be possible for me not to have landed in the education field. And that's where I spent the first 12 years of my career was at the campus level in student-facing positions, working with just amazing people and trying to do whatever I could to support them in achieving the goals that they'd set for themselves. And what that really did is, you know, I was able to see a lot of systemic barriers that were impacting the student experience. And I wanted to work at a level where I could help them dismantle them so that no student was experiencing them. And for me, that is the most exciting part about being with CSU Success. We approach our work every day, seeking to identify opportunities to eliminate institutional performance gaps and advance student success at scale. It's sort of like the ideal pathway uh, for me to to move from the campus level and learn what it means uh, or understand what is impacting the student experience, and then to be able to transition into a role where I'm able to really think deeply about what does it mean to think about this at scale. 
So I'm hearing these stories about your arising into your professional work today. And in nearly every episode this season, our guests have brought up the importance of narrative. And a lot of what we do is storytelling. We tell stories about what's wrong, uh, about what could be, about different ways that partners can collaborate and innovate together. And then those narratives become an ingrained part of the way we interact with partners, including youth and educators and employers, and into the data we gather and choose to act on, and into the policies that we create. What's the story that your work tells? Um, and where is that story gaining traction? That's a really good question, and, and it gets me an opportunity to really reflect on the work. We can be doing a lot of things, Kyle, right? But uh, are we getting to the outcomes we're looking for? And, and that's been part of what I want to sort of promote is making sure that when we make tables, we make them intentionally to get the voices and the conversations and the people there that really need to be there to make sure that change and progress are are that much more progressive. I'd say for the last one um, that I hope is is a is a legacy for me at the end of my career is is inviting friction. We all too often want to talk in an echo chamber, feel good about our work, uh, but how do we bring in voices that are contradicting what we're saying and what we're thinking, and then how do we respond, react, even change to make that better? I really have tried to incorporate those three things of making sure everyone matters, building good tables and inviting friction to see that everyone's passionate about the work. Can we take this passion and turn it into something much more advantageous for everyone? And so in the work, I've seen it in a lot of different ways. And just recently here uh, in Texas and um, with the group in San Antonio, we began to look at data and data sets that really tell the story of leading indicators for economic mobility. And through that conversation and having a a tough point of saying, yeah, we've done a lot of things but uh, in San Antonio, but the, the Moodle needle is totally not moving. They realize that at the end of the day, uh, we probably see the same households when we think about poverty. Uh, we think about the undesirable outcomes in San Antonio. Uh, however, we don't even share that information with each other or have these conversations with each other to figure out what's the way in which we could give holistic supports around that. That would have never happened without bringing, you know, a large group together and making that space available for friction, for debate um, and discourse, which is not necessarily a, a thing that's welcome in America right now. But um, in order to get progress, you have to have those things, I think. And hopefully my legacy will be reflective of that. Mm, and I love the introduction of this idea of friction, because I think it's something we often shy away from. Amanda or Elizabeth, when you think about the story that your work tells, do you see friction playing a role in there? Or are there other things that you feel are, are a critical ingredient in the story that your work is telling right now? I absolutely loved everything that Kenyatta just said. I loved the idea of this table, really thinking about how do we invite people to the table and really incorporate diverse voices and voices that might not usually be there. And I also love the idea of friction, even though it can be challenging. And I think, you know, many of us are, are conflict diverse, but we really get better when we have real conversations. I definitely see in my work, I'm going to be a little bit more specific. My organization is, we really believe that access to work and access to experience should start in high school. And so when I think about our narrative, our narrative is really trying to change the perception of what is the profile 
of someone who is incredibly talented and who could be the next set of leaders in an organization or in a government agency or in a company. That kind of narrative change from thinking about, okay, an intern or an entry-level employee, someone with a college degree, to realizing that young people from really rich and diverse communities can be excellent interns and can fill amazing positions and be leaders. It's a challenging narrative to change. And I think we do get some friction because often employers are coming in with stereotypes about young people and stereotypes about black and brown young people and, and assumptions about what it means if someone chooses not to go to college. So it's an interesting moment. You know, a lot of employers are really saying that they want to think differently about diversity, equity, and inclusion. But really, in order to make a difference, we have to change the perception and that narrative around who is a worker, who is a leader, and our own comfort with inviting people to the table who are not the folks that we usually would have invited. Yeah, really appreciate you illuminating a little bit more about what that table looks like for you and in particular, who needs to be at that table and who has not historically been there. Amanda, what about the story of your work? Are there, what's resonating for you about what you've already heard? A lot of what we do in CSU is we, we try to focus on three simple questions. And that is, what's the current experience? What could it be? And how does this improve student success and equity? What is it? What could it be? How do we center or ground this in equity? You know, I hear your question about friction. And instead, I would, I would pause that to say that what really happens is we sit in a space with a lot of stakeholders and we're able to have those conversations really helps drive our process forward. It, it makes sure that we are seeing the full picture, that we're stopping at points to consider making sure that we are counting for everyone. A challenge for us is by vision, CSU Success wants to be agile and, and responsive to emerging needs, but we also need to balance that against ensuring that our work is thoroughly researched and it's sustainable. That at the end of the day is what ensures that our students have what they need. Amanda, I would love to dig into that a little bit more too, is was there a critical moment or experience where you saw your partners really coming together in a different way around a common goal that was about putting forward something that would make a real difference in the lived experience of young people. Like, what did you see got them there? What was the moment where something changed for those partners in that room? I can give an example of a meeting that I was in recently, and there were a lot of different stakeholders and specifically talking about pathways and high value credentials that lead to thriving wage careers. Part of what the center does when we're invited into spaces like those is to continue to ask the questions that center equity in the conversation and design and really work with everybody to give the information and the resources that we have and that are available to us to kind of support and advance these conversations. You know, the folks in that meeting were all really highly responsive to those questions. You don't get into this work if you don't care deeply about making it work for your students. Um, and we had really rich conversations that informed the approach and design based off of that to be able to kind of tackle some of those things, to ask those questions about, well, what is it that we're hoping this can be like? 
And what is it that CSU Success can bring to this that helps us get there, either with information or resources or just being in the room? Kenyatta, what about you? Is there, is there a moment where you've seen something similar where there's a higher likelihood that the change that needs to be put in place is going to happen because something occurred? What was? Is there a moment for you that you've seen that, that happen? I think about the days in Tennessee when, you know, we were embarking on work that I'll just use for an example. We had this question in Tennessee that, you know, with free community college for all Tennesseans, is that enough? And is it just tuition coverage? That's all that's needed for people to just uh, sign up and go totally in on community college or even higher education. And I'll never forget, I assembled a, a learning tour around Nashville and there's a sort of a backward C around the perimeter of the city where most of your poverty exists. Prior to everyone thought, well, everything is needed and we should see success with the free college programs. And what I did was uh, ask some of the leaders, college leaders, city leaders, other state leaders to join me in these conversations around that area of Nashville to ask and actually create basically a table where the citizens were essentially the board of advisors to this group. The main question was, because we have free college in Tennessee, is that all that's needed for you to engage in higher education? The answer was unanimously in each conversation, whether it was a conversation with homeless youth in the middle of the night, uh, the immigrant and refugee population that's pretty large in Nashville, project housing, project homes and community members there. The answer was no. And one thing that turned out to be an aha moment was one person asked, hey, are you you trying to give me a, a, to earn a, an associate's degree and you're going to pay me $30,000 a year? I mean, is that what you want me to do? Because I can tell you for now, no, thank you. Um, you'll do more damage to me and my family and my household than good. And they were talking about the benefits cliff situation that's now taken up a lot of steam across the nation, which is a good thing. You could see from employers, you could see from college presidents and others that we've had this narrative of, oh, you know, come to college and earn a degree and everything's going to work out. Well, it works out for some, but not for all. And in having that conversation, it got them to thinking about what we've been providing to a lot of communities has really been a false narrative about prosperity. The community members are very clear on it. Uh, we just haven't been. And I'll give you just one example of how that change looked on the ground. A couple of weeks later, a college president reached out to me. They were thinking about launching a new academic program. And the, the wage threshold may have been something like $35,000 a year. And uh, she was really hesitant to launch that program, understanding that it may not have a viable pathway for citizens that she wanted to engage to, to get to the actual thriving wage. It's small things like that where I've seen just a, a little voice from people who you've never seen at the table ask those questions can really, really make a big difference. You know, we need to make sure that we're actually hearing and telling the whole story, not just the parts that we know from our vantage point or our role or that are convenient for us to have in the room. Elizabeth, what about you? Any any moment that you can share that where you saw something pivot um, that gave you a, a sense that we're going to move in another direction now? And, and what was what seeded that moment? Yes, I love this question. One moment that I think about a lot is when my organization, Urban Alliance, uh, created a partnership with another nonprofit called NPower, which is a national organization that provides training in IT and technology. 
And we came together. Urban Alliance is an organization that does not directly provide workforce development, but connects high schoolers with internships. And we came together with Empower to really figure out how could we join forces. And through the development of this partnership, we were also able to bring in corporate support. So Bank of America not only funded this initiative, but also increased its investments in providing internships, paid internships to Urban Alliance's young people. And so, you know, we're intermediaries. That's the purpose of this group and this cohort. But to see nonprofits working together to figure out how we could build upon each other's skills, not compete or not duplicate. And then to see um, an employer, a corporation really getting it and seeing the value and actually investing in in this partnership and this collaboration, I think is just an incredible, incredible moment. And for me, it has been a great evidence, a great example of what happens when we let go of that, those feelings of scarcity or those feelings of unhealthy competition. I love the story and the example, Elizabeth. It brings out really a challenge that not everyone's built to lead that conversation or have that perspective while working with multiple groups. Do you think it's a skill set that's common or do you need that certain skill set in, in the room to be able to get people to zoom out and see it the right way? I think that I have seen more and more people be able to have that conversation. And I think creating these type of cohorts, these types of communities like this one really can support us all in getting there. I think there's definitely been over the past two and a half years with all of us sitting in our rooms represented by a box. I feel like there's definitely been a sense of more of us kind of being our own islands. Um, and I think it can be hard for, for some folks to break out of that. Um, but I, I'm hopeful that as we you know, push forward in a time of increasing uncertainty, like the uncertainty is never ending. <laughs> um, I'm hopeful that more of us are willing to take that risk and kind of try to build up that that collaboration muscle. Yeah, and that's that's actually scary, but it's it's real. It is a risk. It is a, an effort and a courageous effort and risk taking to, to, you know, let go of my bare boundaries and, and try to join forces with others. You know, I'm curious too, Amanda, how, what this looks like or feels like in the context of a state agency, right? You're, you're a public entity and you have accountability structures that are different sometimes than those of nonprofits. What is this like from your vantage point? I don't think it's all that different to what Elizabeth described, though, a lot of what we do at CSU Success is trying to collaborate with others. It's trying to understand where we can help advance something or where we can be in a support role that advances something. It is ultimately what is best for our students. This conversation is also making me want to bring forward something that uh, Luke Ryan from the Delaware Department of Education talked about in our last episode, and he introduced this uh, this point that I that really resonated with me at the time about just being downright impatient, right? And he shared that in the context of policy work and uh, the fact that we don't have to wait for big federal change to push for equitable policies at state and local levels now. And that reminded me also of way back in our first episode when Claire Minson was talking about 
how we approach the act of doing equity work and uh, what she named as the imperative to actually stay focused on progression and not perfection. I'm curious in, in your own work and in your own practice, do you get tangled up um, in between progression and perfection? So Kyle, to your question about what does that look like? I, I think personally, that's something that I'm constantly thinking of and and reminding myself about is, and it's a challenge because, you know, I spent 12 years in campus facing positions working with students. And those are the faces that I see when I think about this work. It, it's what it's what drives me in this work and my understanding of of why we need to keep pushing to do good work for all of our students. But it's it's also the part of me that says, make sure that we have the time that we're thinking these things through, that we're building in mechanisms that allow us to sort of assess the work that we're doing so that the goal is to advance and just make sure that we're doing that. So the idea of not letting perfect, you know, be the enemy of the good is something that at least I, I think about. And I love that final statement of perfect being the enemy of, of the good. I, I think when working with a lot of different coalitions, especially at the start, you know, perfection, unfortunately, is something that's either sold or, or believed in and getting people to appreciate progress has been a challenge. But for me, you know, there, there are certain elements that I look for in progress. The, the most obvious one is, is there someone uh, in the community that is taking advantage of and engaging in something that wasn't there prior to that's actually helping them get closer to their, you know, their long-term dreams. You know, that's, that's the obvious one, but I think within the internal workings of the group, you know, progress uh, for me is really how do ideas get cultivated after uh, the spark of it that weren't really initiated by the program or the initiative among partners that actually carried out the spirit of the work. More importantly, I think when I want to see progress, it's, it's around the, the locus of reform and, have our investments been placed in the areas where they matter the most? And I, and I think the other thing that I look forward to, I think it's really helpful, healthy sometimes for groups every now and then to just say, is this a bad idea that we're implementing? That actually is some of the best progress I've seen out there as people can actually admit and own up to this was just a bad idea. Let's revisit this and think about what progress and even perfection really looks like. Kenyatta, I absolutely love what you just said about this ability for us to take a step back and say, you know what, like, we might not have been right, or this might not have been the best way to approach this problem. And I think that, you know, because of a lot of things around the structures in which we work in terms of our expectations that funders put on us, um, in terms of the way that we often feel like our work is so important and life-changing that we don't give ourselves a lot of room for experimentation and we don't give ourselves a lot of room to, to fail. And then how do we take those lessons learned and really incorporate it into the future? To do it in a healthy way is good. And it goes back to the conversation on on friction, right? The way in which you learn from it and improve, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to make the existing initiative and the people associated with it the enemy. These attempts probably had good intentions, good plans. They just didn't work out. 
I feel like throughout this entire season, we've heard a lot of these dualities that we need to hold constant. And in these points that you're you're all making, I'm hearing like uh, accountability and humility, holding and embracing failure and seeking to embrace the learning that comes with that. So a little bit of a final word moment here, and I'd like to hear from each of you about what's next. And so here's my question. As a field, what do you see as the most important issue or challenge that we absolutely have to address if we're really going to dismantle the inequitable structural and systemic barriers that we see for youth in terms of educational and career outcomes? Kenyatta, what's the thing, what's the hill you're willing to die on? There are actually two and they're connected. And the first one is around this, this concept that I've been pondering around transactional cost. And, you know, the question is, you know, for the same level of services, do, you know, people of color, uh, people in low income communities have to engage in a higher level of transactional cost to access those services? And connected to that and having worked in higher ed and workforce development, we often make the processes and the transactions easy for us and put the burden really on the client to figure things out or jump through hoops to get there. And, and so it's definitely a hill that I want to die on of trying to change the narrative to make sure that the transactional cost is as low as possible uh, for people who need um, access to economic mobility options the most. Um, and then connected to that is around the, the, the conversation or the discussion around linear expectations for nonlinear realities. And we know that, um, you know, some people will go from high school to college and to a job, but that's not necessarily the path for most Americans. And so how can we get rid of that expectation of our primary uh, approach and method is a linear approach to success instead of realizing and honoring and appreciating that most of us are going to have a nonlinear approach to success and how do we build systems that accommodate that more than making it a burden on the person who doesn't have a straight path to success? So those are the two that I'm willing to die on every day. Well, not yet, because we need you out there. Um, Amanda, what about you? What's the battle that you're, 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 you, we, you feel like we just have to fight right now if we're going to dismantle these inequitable structures and systems? So uh, similar to Kenyatta, there are two things that this brings to mind for me, and it's really a, a sort of encapsulation of the, the conversation that we've just been having, which is policy and partnerships. I believe the importance of policy as a lever for change cannot be overemphasized. And I recognize that not everyone sits in a place where they can directly develop policy for the field or even for their organization, but we all have partnerships that we can leverage to advocate for this as a recommended path forward. We can also use those same partnerships and channels to get equity-led and data-informed case-making information or policy recommendations into the hands of policymakers. And this doesn't eliminate vocal opposition or quiet resistance related to this work, especially when you're talking about equity. But at the end of the day, policy-directed work happens and it moves things forward. And being able to point to a policy, especially a policy that explicitly defines how the work is being assessed for equitable advancement, how it's being assessed for efficacy and that measures, it's it's a really potent tool for organizational change and system change. And you really need those partnerships to get you there. I really appreciate that signal and that marriage of the of the policy and the practice and the partnership. Thank you for that. Elizabeth, what about you? This is a big one, but 
I'm really concerned and I have been for a long time about how we educate our young people. And it seems to me that the concept of a high school education and the concept of what you do post high school as, as Kenyatta just articulated, it hasn't changed. And we now live in a world where most adults don't have a college degree. Most young adults of color who start college don't finish. And no one is getting adequate support or information in high schools or even in junior high about what the career opportunities out there are. It is very much you're going to college or you're on your own. And if we don't fix that, what's happening and what's going to continue to happen is those lucky few who do go to college and are able to finish. But the vast majority of people who don't are really just stuck out there, stuck out there without pathways into careers, stuck out there often with thousands and thousands of dollars of debt that they took starting college and not finishing it. And so I really just believe we have to rethink how we approach education and really rethink what is the ultimate impact of high school education um, and what are the tools that we're really giving young people so that they can build a life and a career for themselves. Thank you for mapping this way forward. And thank you all so much again for coming to this conversation and sharing uh, your insights, your experience, your practice. Um, for this conversation, but also with one another. It has been a real honor and pleasure of mine to have uh, and be a part of this conversation with you today. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. And that's season one. Many of our guests this season highlighted how our work to bring about change is about holding dualities, slowing down but maintaining urgency, being patient while embracing impatience as a lever for action. It's also about daily commitments and an openness to do things differently. It's about the courage to be imperfect with ourselves and others in the name of advancing a vision for equity. Today, Elizabeth, Amanda, and Kenyatta all started with their personal stories, our experiences of our families and communities, of our education and of early work, all play such a role in shaping who we are, our aspirations, our perspectives, our why, and how we choose to engage in the world. They also shape how we recognize and honor and act to make change in support of one another, even as our stories differ. Our education and workforce systems are large and may seem intractable, but they are comprised of people, people who can listen to one another deeply, who can move with accountability, who can pivot to measure and act on what matters, and who can choose to collaborate unselfishly. The path may not always be clear, but I leave this season with a sense of the direction we need to head in. This is a road we will make by walking. Thanks for tuning in and listening to Building Equitable Pathways, brought to you by JFF. Together, we're driving transformation of the American workforce and education systems to achieve equitable economic advancement for all. To learn more about Building Equitable Pathways and our coalition of partners, visit us online at jff.org. This is Kyle Hartung from JFF. 
signing off until next spring, when season two will amplify new voices and new stories about the work of building equitable pathways.